Blog Talk Radio. It's already done. It's the Pressure Points Unpacked Podcast with host Tyra Little. We're live Tuesdays at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. This show deals with personal and community issues by getting to the root cause and causes on an open and raw level. We're unpacking emotional, spiritual, mental, and physical topics that influence and often control us. Get ready to unload, examine, and process. Let's get unpacked on Never Had It So Good Sports Media Network, Tuesdays at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Hello, and welcome to Pressure Points Unpacked, where we are transforming Tuesdays spiritually, mentally, emotionally, and physically. I'm your host, Tyra Little, and today we have Supervisory Special Agent James Deloach with us. Helping me unpack today, I have Pastor Anthony McCallum of Bethlehem Baptist Church College Place in Columbia, South Carolina, and Torres Sanders, Licensed Professional Counselor and Licensed Addictions Counselor. So, let's get unpacked. Mr. Deloach, I want to welcome you to the show today. Thank you so much for not finding it robbery to come and just to help us as a community understand the FBI role in what we have the different um, police misconduct and just what you guys do as far as civil dealing with civil rights violations. So I want to welcome you to the show, and I want to give you an opportunity to tell us a little bit about you. Well, thank you, uh, Tyra. I really appreciate I appreciate you uh, for having me uh, and and allowing me to share the stage with you on this most important uh, topic, uh, which is a great platform to do so. Um, so as you mentioned, I am a supervisory special agent. Uh, what I do uh, in the Columbia Division, I swear I am assigned. I am the supervisor for public corruption and civil rights matters uh, inside of South Carolina. I manage and supervise agents uh, throughout the state uh, handling those types of things, both either public corruption or civil rights matters. So I am very excited to to have this conversation with you guys today, Um, and, and I appreciate the invitation and getting the word out of exactly what we do uh, in the FBI as it pertains to this. Great, great, great. Um, when I was looking at your um, abbreviated bio, you um, you have a, a lot of experience here. Um, so I kind of just want to give, um, you know, the listeners a ba- little bit of background about you. Um, I see here, you know, that you were involved in the, let's see, you actually oversaw the the um investigation with the what is this one the unite the right rally in Charlottesville yes yes so um so I've had thirty two years total of law enforcement experience um prior to coming to the f b i uh I served a, a stint in the military um okay. uh following uh the military as a military policeman. Uh, I was a Virginia State Trooper, uh, did that for a number of years before actually becoming uh, a special agent in the FBI. Um, just to give you a little background, uh, my first office was Kansas City, uh, where I worked civil rights matters along with drugs and gangs as well. Uh, I was then assigned to the New York office, where I worked public corruption and civil rights I uh, was promoted into our counterterrorism division at headquarters, FBI headquarters in Washington, D.C. I was at headquarters for a number of years uh, before going back to the field and doing uh, public corruption and civil rights again. I left uh, the Richmond field office and went to headquarters again as a supervisor managing uh, the civil rights program uh, throughout the country. Uh, it was uh, late in 2019 is where I was assigned here in um, in Columbia, South Carolina. Uh, during that time, I've had uh, exposure and experience with a number of different things. Um, you mentioned the Unite the Rally, Unite the Right Rally in Charlottesville, uh, Virginia, 
this is the the rally that they had, a hate crimes uh, event, uh, where I was investigating hate crimes in that particular event. Uh, this is the Tiki Torches uh, uh, at the university, if you remember, mm-hmm. uh, as well as uh, hate crimes investigations, the Walmart shooting that happened in El Paso, Texas, or the Tree of Life shooting that happened in uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, all hate crimes, as it pertains to uh, what we're going to be talking about today, I've been involved in the Eric Gardner case, so I was the case agent uh, for that case. That was the the uh, uh, Eric Gardner was the uh, black male in New York um, that was uh, um, murdered, if you will, by a New York uh, Police Department detective. Mm-hmm. Uh, in addition to that, I also um, advised uh, on the George Floyd case in Minneapolis, uh, Minnesota. Um, so that's just a small uh, snapshot of what I've done uh, in the last few years. Wow. I just think that's just the abbreviated. <laughs> Indeed. That's, that's just the abbreviated. Um, I also want the listeners to know, and, and let me say this quickly also, you guys can call in at 914-205-5361 with any questions that you may have. Um, but I, I want to also let everyone know that, you know, know that, you are representing, you're here with us today representing the FBI, but I also want the listeners to know and understand that your family um, also has been affected by um, a police shooting. Um, you know, we definitely won't be able to go into any details about it or who it was, but your nephew actually was murdered by the police as well. Yes, and, yes. So I, I understand the the other side of it. As well, mm-hmm. yes, indeed. Mm-hmm. And so, um, one of the things that, well, how we actually ended up talking to each other was involving my son's case. And so, um, I ended up reaching out to you because I don't know. I, I actually ended up speaking with another um, young lady over the weekend, and her situation was kind of similar to mine as far as. Um, they were actually just told, well, hey, the FBI is involved in your daughter's, um, no one ever contacted her. Um, and in, and they never saw an agent name. In the instance for me, when I actually went through my son's file, is when I began to see that there was an FBI agent, I guess that was assigned to the case, um, but he never called. So I had a name, agent name, you know, and as we, you know, talked, I, you know, discussed that with you, but you know, for me, it left me with a really bad feeling because I'm like, you know, did they not care? Were they not concerned? You know, I see this person's name here, but no one never contacted me. And so I think in a lot of these different instances, you know, this could be, you know, what's going on that maybe you see or you hear that the FBI is involved. Um, The agent, you know, may or may not call. I don't know what the criteria is for that. But that's one of the reasons why I wanted to have this conversation with you today so we can help the community, the African-American community, to understand, you know, a lot of times as we see it and we're, you know, looking at different videos on TV or we're hearing about what happened and the crime is so egregious. You know what I mean? It's just like, oh, my God, how could this person's civil rights not be violated? You know, and so I wanted to have you on so that you can explain to us, you know, what is the criteria that, you know, you all are looking for in order to, you know, the process that you go through to begin to um, actually, you know, go forward with whatever if you're saying that the person's civil rights was actually violated. Right. No, I appreciate that question, but I'll back up for just a bit before I answer that question and kind of without making you a practitioner, without making you an expert uh, in these types of matters, let me just talk about them for, for, for just a second. Okay. So these matters that we are in particular to talk about fall underneath the FBI civil rights program. Uh, we call these color of law cases. Uh, these color of law cases, and it gets its name um, from the statute itself. 
the actual statute, the federal statute, is deprivation of rights, and the rights that they're referring to are constitutional rights. So color of law is the authority given to individuals in government um, to do certain things. Individuals like um, public officials, judges, prosecutors um, get this, this authority to do certain things. And in this particular case, as we're talking about law enforcement, uh, they have the power to detain individuals or the authority to, attain, to, to detain individuals, arrest suspects, to search and seize property, um, to bring criminal charges against indiv individuals, um, and to use deadly force. So it is that authority that officers in particular, we'll just we'll stick with officers for now, mm -hmm. in particular those officers have that authority in order to do the job that is necessary for them to do, right? Mm -hmm. So having that authority is not the issue. The issue comes in is when that authority is abused. When that authority is abused um, is when the FBI typically comes into uh, typically comes into the the uh, and, and and may investigate a particular case. Now, when I talk about that, um, what I'm really talking about is um, like the Fourth Amendment and the Fourth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. Many people look at the Fourth Amendment, and they oftentimes talk about uh, it is uh, for search and seizures, to protect Americans against unreasonable searches and seizures. What the Fourth Amendment also talks about is unreasonable force. So it is okay for an officer to subdue you with whatever force is necessary to carry out that action, but it is not okay for that officer to use excessive or unreasonable force in a matter in trying to either apprehend you, uh, whatever the case may be. So how do we get involved in these types of cases? Well, there's a couple different ways that we get involved, and I'll talk about here in South Carolina in particular. Um, if a incident does occur and the police department investigates that particular incident, they may investigate this incident through what we call the internal affairs. So these are a set of detectives or sergeants inside of a law enforcement agencies, a law enforcement agency that is set aside that handles investigations of law enforcement misconduct. They can investigate these particular matters, and if they do investigate these matters, they're only looking at uh, charges that come from the state typically, right? So, mm -hmm. for instance, internal affairs can't charge you with a federal or is not going to charge you with a federal crime or a federal civil rights violation. They are going to charge you with uh, whatever state charge or statute that is applicable in that situation. So let's say, for example, an individual is while uh, – while uh, 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 in a confrontation with law enforcement is shot by one of the police officers. Internal Affairs could very well investigate that. Not only would they investigate, but SLED, so South Carolina Law Enforcement Division, could also investigate that. What they're going to be looking at is, is this individual violate policy? Did they violate law? What laws are going to be applicable here are your murder charges, your homicide charges, such as manslaughter, whether it be involuntary or voluntary manslaughter, that's what they're going to be looking at. That's the that is the 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 uh, the, the the lens in which they're going to be looking through. They're not necessarily looking to see if someone has violated someone's civil rights. In my situation, I can have that very same case or that incident happen, and I'm going to be looking at this particular incident through another lens. And the lens that I'm going to look at it through is whether or not an individual's civil rights were violated, in particular those rights that are associated with the Fourth Amendment, which is uh, 
which is unreasonable force or excessive force, the Eighth Amendment, which is cruel and unusual punishment, or the Fourth the Fourteenth Amendment, which is due process. So those are the that's the lens in which I am looking at this particular case through. So my 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 analysis of the case is going to be very different. It's going to have different elements to the case than it would for a local agency looking at the case. Now the question may come up, can both agencies look at the case at the same time? Absolutely. And in some cases we look at those, we look at one incident not only as a state case or case that's worked by state authorities, but we also look at it as a federal case as well, understanding that they don't have the same criteria. So they have very different criteria. How do we get involved in these cases? Internal Affairs may call us, uh, which means the agency. SLED mm -hmm. may involve us in a particular case. Um, there is no formal complaint system for us, so we could see the case. We can see what's going on in the news, for example, or read it in a newspaper, and we can open up an investigation if we believe that we have enough predication to say that it's possible that a civil rights violation has been committed. Now, I know that sounds like a lot, and it sounds very convoluted. It's because the analysis of doing these types of cases are. Um, one of the cases that I'll bring to you know, uh, I'll bring attention to kind of drive this point home is the Slager case. The Slager case was uh, a shooting. Um, of, it was Michael Michael Slager, who uh, it was a North Charleston police officer here in South Carolina, um, pulled over a vehicle. The vehicle being driven by an African American male, which is uh, Walter Walter Scott. Okay. He shoots this individual. So Slager shoots Scott. Um, uh, as he's running away from the vehicle. Fast forward, this case is put on uh, in state court by the prosecutors where they've given the jury the option of this is murder or manslaughter or you can acquit. They looked at it through their lens. They're not looking at this as if did a civil rights violation occurred. They're looking at this through the lens of, did you murder this individual with a murder criteria for that state? Was this a was this a manslaughter case with a criteria for that particular statute? Um, and as you well know, in that particular case, uh, the jury came back as a hung jury. Not too long after that case occurred and the hung jury came back, the federal government, um, who had also indicted, um, also charged um, the, as charged Officer Slager, a former Officer Slager, in that particular case. It is because of the federal case, the federal color of law violation or deprivation of rights, is why he was sentenced to 20 years. It is it is for that case. So I I say that because where we meet the criteria one place, we may not necessarily meet the criteria in another place because the standards are different. You may ask, what are those standards? The standards for color of law violation is that the officer must be acting under, under the color of law, which is under the authority granted to him, that the act, whatever the act is, whether it's a kicking or a sexual assault or a shooting, that that act was willful. That's usually the very high bar that we have to jump, is whether or not the act is willful. And then, did the officer violate or, or deprive this particular citizen um, of a constitutional right? And again, usually we're looking at cases or, or um, constitutional rights such as the Fourth Amendment, the Eighth Amendment, or the Fourteenth. So that's usually the analysis that's put in, and again, it's, it, it sounds complicated, it sounds convoluted, um, but it is a huge process. And it's not as easy as saying or looking at a video and saying, hey, this particular video shows one thing, um, this just seems like an egregious act, why aren't we charging this individual? 
Um, I wish it was that simple. It's not. Um, that's not how it works. Um, but can we get involved in those cases? Absolutely, we can get involved in those cases. But we're looking at it through the lens of whether or not an individual's rights were violated uh, in a particular shooting, whether or not that was excessive. Was it excessive force used to subdue the individual um, given the set of circumstances and the facts at the time? Hi. I know that was a mouthful. It was. <laughs> and, and thank you for that, um, Agent DeLoach. Um, you know, it kind of explains a lot of the rationale as to why certain cases um, are pursued criminally um, versus, you know, the family pursuing, you know, civil um, action. And I was making some notes when you were talking, and I think the word that stood out to me um, was willful. Um, and that's a game changer, um, you know, I guess from the federal standard compared to state laws where, you know, manslaughter doesn't necessarily have to be intentional. It just has to be reckless um, um, or wanton. So I think, you know, would you agree that that willful standard is probably what decides what cases are pursued and which ones are not pursued? Absolutely, almost 100%. Usually there is no issue. When we're doing the analysis of a particular case, there's no issue Oftentimes, there's no issue with determining whether or not an individual was operating under color of law, so operating under some authority. So if they were driving in their police car, they were at work, that's an easy, that's an easy yes for that. Um, the hard part usually comes in with the willfulness, and willfulness is a higher standard. So willfulness is the intent portion of the statute, but the standard willfulness legally is much higher than just intent. So it is not the willfulness as in being deliberate. Willfulness means in this application for, for this particular statute, what willfulness, willfulness means is that the officer knew what he was doing was wrong and decided to do it anyway. He knew what he was doing was wrong and decided to do it anyway. And that's, the, that's not as easy to get there with a yes. Um, how do we get there sometimes? We get there through training. What was the officer trained? How was the officer trained? Is it part of the officer's training to do this, that, or the other? So willfulness is a very high standard and a very high hurdle for us to oftentimes cross. So you're absolutely right in, in, in picking that out. My, my other question is, you know, given a lot of these high-profile cases and um, I guess the one of the ones that really comes to mind is the, the case in Kentucky where the, uh, the attorney general you know, refused to press charges um, for one of the officer-involved shootings. And then, of course, you know, when that happens, the pressure then is, you know, will, you know, the FBI, the federal government come step in and, you know, do the right thing. I mean, do you feel like that's a reality, like the pressure's on the federal government to step in where state or, you know, the local um, attorney general or the solicitor is not going to pursue charges? Right. It's always the pressure. Right. It's always it's always the pressure that if the state's not going to do something, that the federal government's going to come in and fix it. It's always the perception that that's the case when in reality, that's not the case. In many of these high profile cases that you see, if they're high profile. I can guarantee you that the FBI is on the ground almost immediately. You just don't know. The FBI, in many cases, in particular high-profile cases, we're working those cases from usually the beginning of that particular case. You just don't hear about it. Um, we do 
a little bit different because the way that we charge in these types of cases and civil rights investigations, um, the majority of them are charged through indictments. So what does that mean? An indictment simply means that we present cases in order for us to charge, especially in civil rights cases, we present those cases to grand juries. And the grand juries will return a thumbs up or thumbs down and say, yes, you do have sufficient evidence to go ahead and charge or probable cause to charge this individual, or no, you don't. Where do we see that? What was one of the more public cases where we saw a grand jury decided not to? Well, most recently, Breonna Taylor, but um, even before then, the Michael Brown case. The Michael Brown case, the prosecutor decided, hey, I'm not going to make this call. I'm going to let the public representatives make this call in the form of a grand jury. And for them to hear the evidence and decide whether or not it's enough probable cause. So when we charge in cases, civil rights cases, we indict folks. We use the grand jury as an investigative piece of our investigation. Um, so it's very different. But the perception is always that the federal government is going to come in and perhaps fix. Just understand that the federal government is looking at it through a different lens than what the state was looking at it. We don't have homicide charges uh, federally. So we don't charge federal homicide cases. You don't get federally charged. Now, if you commit a homicide in the commission of a color of law violation, yes, we will take that into consideration, and that is part of the process. But we don't have a standalone homicide charge. So we're not looking at it like the state would be looking at it in a in a murder case because the criteria is very different we're strictly looking at it as a civil rights violation thank you thank wow. you for explaining that yeah definitely um we're at a point right now let's take a quick break and then when we come back um we're going to segue pastor mccallum has a question for you so okay. we're going to go to break right now Your skin isn't just skin. It's a beautiful reflection of every single thing you've been through in life. Which is why Dove Body Wash renews your skin's ceramides and strengthens it against dryness. For instantly softer, smoother skin, you can lovingly embrace. Renew the love for your skin with Dove Body Wash. Well, welcome back to Pressure Points Unpacked, and I'm your host, Tyra Little, and today we're talking with Supervisory Special Agent James Deloach. Pastor McCallum? Uh, yes, uh, thank you, guys. Uh, certainly it's delightful to have an opportunity to speak with uh, Agent uh, Deloach. Thank you, sir, for that powerful, uh, just uh, almost like a crash course uh, certainly as informative and educating our community as relates to the laws and how it works. In particular, you used the word uh, color of the law. That's that that's something I did not know, but it was really delightful to hear it. Uh, and the way that you explained it was so so understandable. And thank you for that, sir. My question I would like to ask, ask you, sir, would be as it relates to the, the faith community, uh, God-fearing people and the church, what would be your recommendations as relates to how they should be engaging uh, those uh, like in your field and, and getting better information uh, to share with, um, with uh, you know, minorities and just people of faith? What, what would you recommend or what uh, ideas would you give uh, for leaders to have someone come in and, and certainly engage uh, the congregant as relates to understanding the law, like the way you explained it, because it was very, very um implicit the way you explained it, and it was very, very uh, understandable. Well, sir, I, I really appreciate that. Um, one way is is to invite us in. Um, okay. <laughs> it's just that it, I, I know it may sound uh, simple, um, and people may think, hey, it's the FBI, and, um, you know, they've got tons of things that they're doing, but part of what is necessary for this process is education. 
and it's education for the community. But listen, we don't we're not stopping there. Uh, this so after Michael Brown situation in Ferguson, Missouri, Department of Justice and the FBI realized something very important that most people don't realize the FBI's involvement in these cases. So we came up with a uh, basically kind of uh, a training for the community and for law enforcement as well, um, either separately or together, to have these conversations, to explain to people exactly how this works. Um, so to answer your question, it's simply inviting us in. What I've asked my agents to do uh, throughout the state when I got here in 2019, and COVID has caused a little, a little wrinkle in my plan, but the plan going forward when I got here was to get out to every single community that we could in the state and put this information out. Um, and I've got agents that are, as I mentioned, that are throughout. I'm here in Columbia, South Carolina, where the main office is, but we have satellite offices all throughout the state. So all it is is simple as asking, asking us to come out, um, and we will 100%, um, I, I guarantee you won't get turned down. That is a guarantee I will definitely make to you. We will be as accommodating as we possibly can. And I would suggest that if you have people and folks, um, don't hesitate to invite them because we will come out and we'll, we'll, we'll put on and we will answer as many questions as we possibly can because the education part of this is extremely important for folks to understand what our role is and how it works. Uh-oh. Right, right. I, you know, uh, I think Ms. Tara doing a good job. Thank you, Ms. Tara, for certainly inviting uh, Mr. Leloach. Uh, very, very thorough, uh, very uh, easy the way he approached uh, with his content of of sharing uh, the law, how it really works, as Terrence was saying earlier. But I would say, um, um, Agent Leloach, is that one of my one of my approaches relates to the faith community, the church, at least for me, is I try to do every so often uh, – Connections or fellowship with uh, quite natural first responders, police officers, and all. I want to try to slow and gradually break down some of the fear and the barrier uh, between those, um, you know, who who are here to protect us and, and so forth. And, you know, that's a great great myth in our community uh, as it relates to the African American community about policemen and so forth, because of past experiences and people feeling uh, fearful or somewhat apprehension about. Sitting down when you're talking about bringing, uh, you know, those of the law to come in just and have a conversation. And so my goal was trying to certainly break that down by inviting them on a regular basis to come and just, you know, speak to to the congregation, come and speak to different functions or ministries within the church, uh, so that can kind of slowly and gradually for our young people as well to try to break down some of those uh, myths. But when you see things that what our people are seeing on television and so forth and what they are seeing, it certainly is a very challenging thing for, uh, you know, to bring someone as relates to within the, the law side of things to talk to the African-American community. they like, I don't know. I don't know about that, Reverend, because what I'm seeing, what I'm, what I'm experiencing, uh, what my young people are bringing home, they have a fear, I guess, and we got to figure out ways. And I know it has a lot to do with bringing you or persons like you into the faith community a little bit more to engage um, the the community. And those things are very important, but, uh, you know, it's, it's a challenging time to just try to get those in your field to come and talk to. You say, for example, I'm going to bring an FBI agent to come and just talk with us and talk to us about the law and your rights and those kind of things. Hey, FBI agent, man, I got some I got some problem with the law right now. You bring him in here, you know, people start having these walls put up already automatically. Yeah, but so, we, but it's our yeah. but it's our job though to make sure you know that we let them know that they're here for educational purposes because right. we have mm-hmm. to get past all of the excuses and not to say you're right. making an excuse, but I understand what you're saying right. Right. about different people. Right. We have to get past that because if we want to get to any type of resolution and get to a place to where we can work together, because as we all know and we say it all the time, not every police officer is a bad officer. 
You understand what I'm saying? But we have to find a way to get past right. it. I have a caller. Um, let me go ahead and open up the line for the caller. Give me one second here. Last four digits, 5375. Hi. Hello, everyone. I'm Sharon. Hi, Sharon. And I'm, hi. I am very proud of um, Tara as well. She, um, a change agent. This is like a change agent and everyone to get involved. And I, um, I've heard some things that I have to remember. And I say that word to say, you can't get upset. You can't take it personal because this is about informational is about being a change agent. And what I was hearing, the different definitions, because I'm a retired educator. And so that was really perplexing to me. Is it interpretive of one's own definition of how do we um, come about these different cases? And as you say, the colorism, and that was very, because I don't, I mean, I guess I'm going to ask this question. Is there a a one-fit-all? Is there one manual that everybody go by or different states? You know, you mentioned the case with Breonna Taylor. I mean, and not deciding not to prosecute. So just these things. Right. Sharon, first of all, thank you for your question, and thanks for calling in. Uh, So the answer answer in its most simplest forms is no. There's not one size that fits all, especially at the state Mm -hmm. level. There is a one size fits all for the federal level. Right, because federal statute is the same regardless of what state you live in. So the federal statute is the same, but state statutes are not the same. You know, you go to one place, um, mm-hmm. let's say you, you go to Texas, for example, and it's not uh, murder and voluntary mm-hmm. and involuntary manslaughter. It's first-degree murder, second-degree murder, third-degree murder that may also mimic those same traits as a manslaughter. So they call them different things. They have different, they have different standards. The, the, the state legislator has, has dictated that in order for you to be murdered or be classified as a murder here, this is the criteria. So all states are a little bit different. I mean, we can all look at it and say homicide, the definition of a homicide, for example, is uh, a person killing another person, right? So that is a universal term, but in terms of what constitutes a homicide, a murder, or a manslaughter charge is very different depending on what state you live in. It's the same as the use of of, uh, force policy. Now, you've got a lot of agencies inside of South Carolina, police agencies, both law enforcement, uh, police departments, and sheriff's offices. Mm -hmm. They all get trained inside of South Carolina Criminal Justice Academy. But each agency has its very own policy when it comes to use of force. Some of them may say, for example, hey, you can pursue a vehicle that's running away from you. And some in South Carolina are going to say you cannot pursue a vehicle that's running away from you. Those policies are things that, yes, we, we look at, but there are variances in those policies depending upon where you are. The federal statute, however, is the same. It's very consistent all the way throughout. It doesn't matter because that's – so that's the difference is we're looking at civil rights violations. That's why okay. I say we don't have a we don't have a federal homicide or murder charge. We don't have that. So either you're operating under color of law, it's willful, and did you violate a constitutional right? Those are the three things necessary. That's it. Now the willfulness as as it was pointed out is the very high hurdle that we have to jump is it is a higher standard, but that's the, that's the, that's the criteria. It's, it's just as simple as that, but, and I wish I could say that you would bring, we would bring cases <laughs> I, I, a lot more. I'm sorry. I'm understanding some more talks is going to have to have this to be a change agent. 
you know, these verbs is these verbs is not these adjectives and these verbs are very strong and everybody's not interpreting the same way. Right. Absolutely. Oh. I would agree with you. Oh. Right. Sharon, well, we okay. definitely yes. we definitely yes. thank you for calling yes. in. Thank you so much. I appreciate thank you. it. Thank you for thank you. Yes, thank you. Mm-hmm. Um Agent Deloach, let me let me ask you, um, so I'm hearing what you're saying, and, and, you know, I know that the federal laws, those statutes are, you know, this is what they are. But I want to ask a question because I'm, I'm thinking back to Walter Scott again, and I think back about how if that video hadn't come out, like when you guys, um, you know, making your decisions and looking at this, do the video, would that have any any bearing on the case because, you know, when I think about what happened with Walter and what the, you know, police officer was saying in the beginning, it so much reminds me of what happened with my son, you know. Um, right. So um, how important is video? Um, video Video's a piece of the puzzle. It is not the entire puzzle. It's not 90% of the puzzle. Um, it is a piece of the puzzle. And to answer your question, is is video required? Um, would we have gotten involved if there wasn't any video? Um, yeah, we, we could have still gotten uh, have gotten involved. There's a ton of cases that we've gotten involved where there there aren't any video videos um, that were available. So video is just a piece of the puzzle. And let me say this. <laughs> And I and I and I say this to 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 my communities all the time, and and, and when I'm doing town halls, just because it's a video doesn't mean it's a slam dunk. Because people interpret the, even the videos. Going back to Sharon's, uh, the caller who just called in, how people have different interpretations. People will look at a video and not pull the same thing or not come to the same conclusion by looking at that video. So I was in one of the more higher-profile cases with the uh, Eric Gardner case, um, and in that particular case where there were several videos, one in particular that they often and constantly showed, the video does not necessarily mean it's a slam-dunk case because there's other things to prove. There's other things that we must, in order to make this, in order to to get a, a secure conviction in these types of cases, there's other things that have to be present. So a video is helpful, but it's, it's, it's by far not a criteria and that we have to have a video um, for these types of cases. Wow. Agent DeLoach, I know, you know the information you've been sharing is quite shocking, um, unfortunately, and I think that is – probably why we see some of the the outrage and um, the protesting and demonstrating of, you know, the system has failed, if you will. Um, You know, when when you were really explaining that, I really appreciate you kind of breaking this down. It made me think, you know, Congress is, you know, talking about creating, you know, new laws and, and new bills and, you know, I kind of have more of a common sense approach. Let's like re-examine the existing laws and the existing statutes and see where we are today in, you know, 2021 and, and moving forward. What do we need to to revise? You know, like mm-hmm. do we need to re-examine this word willful um, and expand it, you know, to maybe include something like you know, reckless endangerment or, you know, um, wanton abandonment. Um, Because, you know, when you get into the legality and the technicality of these terms, you know, and you have a juror, you just need one, really, um, to be convinced. It's kind of like you're you're fighting um, a defeated cause, if you will. I mean, what do you think about the the revisement or enhancement of, you know, the statutes that you know, y'all have used in the past to make these cases? 
Well, I'll tell you, I mean, it's, it's, it's certainly, um, and I just call on everyone. Um, that, that is why I think education is extremely important. Um, when it comes to this and, and quite frankly, quite a few things, uh, that's out there in the public domain, um, education is necessary. So you know what you're fighting for. Um, I think it's, I think it's absolutely valuable for any individual to get involved um, be aware of who and what you're voting for when you get into the booths. Um, right. All of those things are necessary. It's part of the process, right? So um, this particular law, this this code, this, the statute that I cite, um, is post-reconstruction error statute. This is not a statute that just came out 15 years ago. This is a statute that's been on the books for a very, very long time. So, yes, I mean, if, 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 if by and large there, there's individuals that feel like uh, there's an issue with anything, whether it's state statutes or federal statutes, you contact your congressman, your representative, your senator, uh, and you make that point. You make your case. Um, but I think that's valuable with everything that's out there. So I, I do see value in that, absolutely. Right. And, and we had a lawmaker on last week, and this is one of the things that I've been constantly pushing and saying that, you know, we have to educate ourselves on the people that we are voting in the office. And then, you know, we also have to take on our own ownership to where we talk with the the elected officials, the officials that we're electing, um, about making some of these changes because, my God, you, you're you're saying that this law, <laughs> how old it is? I mean, you know, we there there needs to be some things, just like Taurus said, to make that shift. You know, we we need to we we got work to do. We we got a lot of work to do. We got a lot of work to do. Taurus, you want to segue back in there? You have anything else? Wow. Well, you know, Agent Deloach, I, I appreciate the. <clears throat> the work that you do, because I, I can imagine, you know, being prior law enforcement, um, you know, investigations against police are not welcome, you know, whether you're the IA or some external agency like SLED or FBI. Um, so, you know, I really applaud you because I'm sure, you know, it hasn't always been a parade of welcoming and, and hospitality. And <clears throat> I guess, you know, what would you offer, um, in addition, you know, other than soliciting our elected officials, um, you know, perhaps, you know, about educating ourselves specifically when it comes to even the Fourth Amendment. I mean, the Fourth Amendment says a lot. I mean, when I was in the academy, I mean, we talked about that every day, actually, um, just because it was the main thing we were going to be um, dealing with. I mean, even something as simple as the Fourth Amendment. I mean, what would you say about you know, people just educating themselves on, you know, basic rights as citizens. Absolutely. I, I just think that that is absolutely fundamental. Um, I think, um, and, and that's why I offer what I offer. Um, when I come out and I talk, uh, I try to offer up uh, the perspective of having um, been in law enforcement uh, for uh, for, for as long as I have, being a parent, um, being a part of that community, um, I, I think knowing some of this uh, is very beneficial. Knowing how to interact with law enforcement is, 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 is beneficial. Um, and I don't come from a perspective that I am from outside the community because I'm not. Um, but I think that's important. I also oftentimes like to talk about the criminal justice system and what the criminal justice system is because when people think about the criminal justice system they think about police officers the probation officer the correctional officer the prosecutor the judge but what they oftentimes leave out is themselves the juries oftentimes these cases are brought before uh, uh, prosecutors bring, they charge these cases, they bring them before a judge and before a jury, and the jury either finds them guilty or not guilty. That is part of the criminal justice system. 
it is it is you the lay person that is also part of the criminal justice system. Absolutely. You that serve on a jury is also part of the criminal justice system. So when we talk about the criminal justice system is broke, we're also talking about including ourselves in that process because okay. I see it that way. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's, I mean, that's, that's, that's a really good point. Um, and that was one of the things that I mentioned, too, about, you know, we have to stop dodging jury duty. You know, um, if you're supposed to be, you know, judged upon a jury of your peers. I mean, if we're not there, you know, we, we can't make a difference in this case. And then, you know, the educational piece we have to get because when you go and you sit on the jury, now I know that, you know, they give you the instructions and you're supposed to go by the instructions when you're making um, your decisions, but it definitely, um, it helps is needed if you have a little more insight, some more education on, on the process. You know? Wow. Absolutely. Wow. Um, now, let me ask you this, too. Let's segue back into um, a quick question as far as when you end up with the case and later on as a family, for me, for instance, finding out that there was um, an agent assigned, is it that normally always agents don't reach out to the family or what what happens there? I mean, I know you can't speak to the individual, you know, as to why they did not contact me. But um, is there a normal process that you guys do reach out to the family to let them know that you're involved or you ask the family any questions? Yeah, so I I think that's a great question. Um, And I I think it really kind of depends on who's working the case or um, where you are, your your the the impact so civil rights cases as i have always explained it to agents um are very different uh than working a cyber case or working a bank robbery um working a drug case who, who, what, who what parent what family are you going to when you work a drug case so it's very different and sometimes um we do we get very walled off and looking at the case gathering the facts for instance if you if there's not a lot of information that you can provide on that particular case um, or no information you can provide on that case in getting to a point where we're trying to see if the case if there's enough predication to charge the case if if there if you are not going to be i hate to say if not useful information then they may not now that's not necessarily the empathetic thing to do. That's not the um, uh, the thing that I would suggest uh, agents uh, doing. But most won't reach out uh, to the families. The FBI as a whole, we don't comment on cases. We don't comment on ongoing investigations. Um, and 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 you know, this is an agent talking about myself who, you know, hey, let me go out and talk to the family. And as soon as you have a conversation with the family, the family solicits information and the next, there's no gag order on the family. Next thing you know, the information is elsewhere and I can't control that information. So because the FBI has a policy uh, and the Department of Justice has a policy that we don't talk about ongoing investigations. Yes, we'll ask you questions about the investigations, about the investigation on the matter at hand, but we just don't. And again, it's not the compassion, it's not the most empathetic, having been on that side before, I get mm-hmm. it. And that's why I say to my guys, yes, we are, um, but I can understand many FBI agents and many officers not doing it quite frankly. Uh, so what generally happens in these types of cases, the FBI open up a case, um, you know, uh, if it's a case that's been opened by me, the, uh, the, the family uh, may be contacted, but you may not get any additional information other than that. You may or may not find out that information. Who normally interacts with families um, is usually victim and witness services. Okay, so victim services will actually be your point of contact. 
your point of contact, at least for the FBI, and that may be different in, in, in local departments, but your, your, your point of contact is going to be victim services. And depending on where you are in the process mm-hmm. will depend on which victim services um, you will be receiving. Are you receiving victim services from the FBI? Are you receiving victim services from the Department of Justice? Is the individual been convicted? Are you receiving information? Because you're not going to receive you're not going to receive information from the agent. So it depends on where you are in the process and where where we're you know where the case is will kind of depend on who's communicating with you. What's the proper protocol for that individual? communicating with you. And if the case hasn't been charged and it hasn't been certified, then very likely um, you may not, it is, you may not hear um, from that particular agent. Yeah, but then I'm listening to what you're saying about the victim services also. So, I mean, I guess for families, I think there's, that's where there's, there's a breakdown there because if the FBI, you know, Department of Justice that they have this victim um, department, then if no one is reaching out to us or if, case in point, if, if I would not have dug through my son's file, I would not have never known that the FBI, you know, was involved, that there was an actual name. Now, I was, I, you know, heard from someone else that they were saying, hey, you know, the FBI is looking into this. But when I went in and actually saw and saw the name, I mean, other than that, you know, it seems like the onus is placed on the family to dig and find out. I mean, I don't know. It just seems like it will make sense that in an instance like this, that the FBI victim services or Department of Justice, that they would reach out to the family. If the agent no, I can. totally understand that. Hmm. Okay. Well, um, we are... Wow, we're we're this this has went by pretty fast here. <laughs> we have five five <laughs> actually five minutes that's left. Um I wanna give um you, Agent Deloche, if you have any last words of wisdom or anything that you want to um you know, to say or, you know, to let everyone, you know, know if you could you have the floor to share that. And, and I appreciate it. I appreciate uh, once again, uh, uh, Miss Little, for the platform, the ability to have this conversation. I think it's a very, very important conversation to have that most people don't know. Most people don't know this information. Uh, I know when I go out to police departments and talk to police officers uh, about this same information, about these types of cases, they oftentimes don't know this and don't know. Uh, that FBI gets involved in these types of cases. So I want to say education is important. If you feel like um, you uh, have a a matter uh, and it's a possible color of law, and just so that we understand, color of law is the abuse of the authority. It doesn't matter uh, whether it is a shooting or a beating or a sexual assault. It can come in many, many different forms. Um, so it's just not those those situations where an individual is 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 being uh, shot or killed. Um, the individual can just be injured. Um, so those things are things that we have to consider. Um, along with that, uh, oftentimes uh, there is a perception that the FBI gets involved because it's a civil rights matter. That the FBI gets involved because there is a racial component to it. There's a white police officer um, and a African-American victim, let's say. Mm -hmm. Uh, For this particular statute, there is no race component. It does not matter if the officer was African-American and the victim was African-American. It doesn't matter if the officer was Hispanic and the victim was. It, It has no racial component. What we're looking at is the officer's conduct. That is what we're looking at. So um, I will just close this out because I know that the hour that we had, um, it's a lot of information. Uh, Like I said, I didn't want to make anybody an expert or practitioner leave that to us. 
Um, <laughs> but I do. I think there's valuable information in uh, in inside of the details that I think uh, that, that I think is useful. Mm-hmm. If in fact there is a case or a matter, you have a complaint. Don't hesitate uh, to reach out to us. There's a couple different ways you can do it. You can do it through uh, the website, which is fbi.gov. Go down to the bottom. There's a contact us portion. So even if you're not in South Carolina, the incident happened somewhere else, you can find the field office uh, or jurisdiction or where you are. There's also a way uh, going through the same format where you can uh, email us your complaint or you can call uh, the national uh, hotline and uh, file a complaint. They will do the work in finding out exactly where you are and where that call needs to go. If you're inside Columbia, excuse me, if you're inside of South Carolina and you have a complaint, you you want to talk to an agent about a potential um, color of law complaint, we ain't even touch on hate crimes because this state doesn't even have hate crime statutes, but I cover that as well. Um, <laughs> the number to call is 803-551-4200. 803-551-4200 will get you to the Columbia Field Office, which covers the state of South Carolina. Um, and you can certainly ask for me. Uh, or talk to the duty agent, and they will uh, they will either patch you through or send me the information. So there's a couple different ways that you can get in contact with us. Know that we do work these kinds of cases. Um, mm-hmm. This is certainly within the FBI's purview. Uh, we are the ones that handle um, these types of matters with law enforcement misconduct. And I thank you for having me on. I Great question. thank you. I, I thank you so much. Um, and definitely there will be another time that we will definitely need you um, because the community needs, we, we need to know and understand um, what's going on. And so we don't always feel like, well, hey, you know, we're, we're being mistreated here, but we also need to know that the time is now. We have to get some legislative changes in. We, we have to. It's, it's necessary. Um, we have to do our part. Taurus. Yes, uh, Tara, I, I, I echo that as well. Um, I usually am not lost for words, but um, I'm still kind of digesting <laughs> the information right. from today. Um, and, you know, I, I appreciate your time, Agent Deloach, and uh, hopefully we'll have future conversations. Definitely. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, definitely. Um, Pastor McCallum, but before, before I go to Pastor McCallum real quick, I, I want to say um, I am so grateful that you guys joined me on this, this first month here of June. Um, and this is Taurus and Pastor McCallum's last little rodeo here with me today until another time. Um Next month, we're going to have um, Pastor Tracy Hugie that will be coming on. And next week, we're going to start talking about race-based trauma. Um, we're also going to have Dr. Teresa Hugie, um, and she's a doctor of, of um, nursing practices and psychiatric mental health. Um, so she's a nurse practitioner, but we will have her and so, so Dr. Teresa Hugie. And Pastor Tracy Hugie will be on with us for the month of July. Um, Pastor McCallum, I, I thank you so much um, thank you. for jumping in and jumping in here with me on the first first go round. Um, you and Taurus, I just I, I thank you. I thank you guys for trusting the vision that God has given me for this platform, and I, I just I thank you. So I want to give you an opportunity if you want to give give um, a, a moment of, of wisdom to us and then let us know where we can find you at until we get a chance to bring sure. you back on again. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Tower. Thank you uh, so much. I'm just proud of you, what you are doing and how you're certainly trying to engage our community. And, and, and just, I just want to say thank you for allowing me to be a part of something that's magical, something that's going to be insightful and impactful uh, for 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 many months and uh, years to come. Uh, I do believe you're going to be the uh, gatekeeper 
workforce here in South Carolina as relates to uh, mothers who or individuals who experience trauma the way you did. And I thank uh, God for and putting that that burning in your belly to start this and to have this kind of dialogue. Certainly to my compadre, Mr. Terrence, thank God for him, uh, <laughs> a kind, kind soul, kind spirit. And last but not least, a special thanks to uh, Agent Deloach. Thank you, sir, for your powerful presentation um, uh, as it relates to the laws and how we need to be better informed. Certainly, I'll have to connect with you on, on a personal level to do some things with me as it relates to the faith community. But I want to say certainly to all the listeners, remember this, uh, with all we've experienced in the last years or so of all the uh, police brutality, I just want to put this in your feather to think about this. And ask the question, how Jesus experienced police brutality? How did Jesus experience police brutality? And you go back, you Bible persons who like reading the Bible over in Matthew's gospel, you were discovering it in 27th chapter Matthew. You get around the 25th, 26th, 27th, 28th verse, you'll discover how Jesus uh, experienced brutality from a mob. How he was hounded very rudely and, and uh, through uh, in a modern time now, what I would consider to be Polish brutality uh, against him, the centurions, who surrounded Jesus and, and unconsciously uh, demoralized him. And the Bible talks about how they actually literally stripped him naked, mm-hmm. mocked him, and beat him maliciously while he was in their custody. And yet the crooked centurions stripped the innocent Jesus. And in our time, we are still experiencing that happening in our communities, how our men and women get pulled over nonsense stuff and some of them are handled beaten and, and dealt with brutally and there have been in some incidents where many of them have actually been uh, uh, abused by being stripped uh, and what they were called and I know agent um, Deloach can understand what I'm saying when it's been stripped down and what they call cavity search and full view of onlookers simply mentioning the names of victims such as Abner Lumina or perpetrator as an officer by the name of Daniel Holtzclaw, speaks about country's familiarity with criminal sexuality brutality by law enforcement. So, yes, we are dealing with these things, but just keep this in mind. We're not alone. Christ understands what we're dealing with. More information, more education, the better we can be. Fight these problems. Thank you yes. so much. Yes, yes, sir, yes, sir. I thank you, thank you. And, again, this is Pressure Points Unpack. I'm your host, Tyra Little. You can find us on Instagram. Um, you can always hear any of the podcasts, again, through Blog Talk Radio and all of the other platforms, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, you name it, we're out there. So um, engage with us during the week um, on social media. We'd love to, to hear what you have to say. And if you have any suggestions or input, um, please let me know. So, again, This is Pressure Points Unpacked. We will see you next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Thank you. It's already.